Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, May 24th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we return to our conversation with Jackson criminologist Kevin Levine. Then we talk with a call center employee on strike today in Hattiesburg. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On yesterday's show, Kevin Levine, a professor of criminology at Jackson State University and a veteran law enforcement officer, told us four institutions must come together to address Jackson's high violent crime rate, families, schools, community partners and the criminal justice system. Right now, he says collaboration between them is broken. The community is not going to call and snitch on them because they're afraid that if they call and snitch, they'll find out it was them because... You know, they have a lack of trust of the law enforcement. They feel that, well, if I say, hey, he's here, then they're going to say, well, your neighbor told me. So there's a disconnect between the community and law enforcement uh, because we haven't done a good job recently of winning over the trust and confidence, when I say we, law enforcement, of uh, the community. We return to our conversation with Kevin Levine now. He tells us police can still be a part of the solution in Jackson. We can stand the benefit, and there's always a benefit from visibility in areas that are considered hot spots. In those areas where we have hot spots, yes, we could benefit, and we do need more officers. I remember when I came on JPD back in 91, my class, I was in the 18th recruit class. The 17th and the 18th recruit class back then was supposed to bring JPD up to the numbers that uh, were needed to patrol the city. And now we're on class 60-something. So we have to question, what happened to all those officers between the 18th and the 60-something class? So that is, uh, we're, we're behind the eight ball. So the, the, the criminal element is outnumbering in great numbers the, the law enforcement uh, capacity in the city of Jackson. All of these elements have to come together in order to change what we're dealing with? I mean, if some elements come into play and others do not, yes, ma'am. we're not going to see this be effective? 
No, ma'am. And, and that's why I said when I started out with the four components of the uh, our uh, um, social institution that have to come together and work together, you're you're exactly right. Uh, if you have one side just doing something and the other uh, uh, partner, let me call them partner, and the other partner is not doing what they are uh, supposed to do for whatever reason, the plan is not going to come together. And, and when I say, let me let me make this clear, when I say we can't police our way out because I know a lot of people are going to take odds with that, I was successful in cleaning up an entire area in a, in when they didn't have to make one arrest. So it's possible to do that. But it has to be a buy-in from all partners of uh, the community. It has to be a 100% buy-in. So you're exactly right. If all of these partners don't buy in, uh, there's going to be gaps and lacking in addressing the uh, youth violence problem we have in Jackson. And I stand behind that 100% based on academics and being a 32-year practitioner in law enforcement, which I spend much of my time working the streets. At one time, community policing was being touted. Has that gone by the wayside because there's not enough police officers? Oh, most definitely. Uh, I'm certified in community policing through Michigan State University, and I was one of the first at JPD to start using community policing. But at the time, we had the numbers. But now you don't. If you don't have the numbers, when you come in the police, you have to have officers dedicated to working with the community neighborhood associations, going to the neighborhood association meeting, getting out of those cars and walking in the community, getting to know Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, getting to know these individuals. At one point, uh, we had a bike patrol. I started at JPD that we were ride. We instead of riding our cars. I was in Precinct 3. Some of the neighborhoods, we were we, we, we were looking at using them bicycles to ride. Now you can't do that because, one, it's too dangerous to put officers out there doing that. And, uh, two, like you said, they don't have enough officers to dedicate to community policing. Not that that's not a desire because I know the sheriff, Tyree Jones, is committed to implementing community policing in the Hines County Sheriff's Department. So there, there is a true desire to do that. So it hadn't fallen by the wayside. But let me add this, Ms. Frazier. Community policing isn't one of the – we had three eras of law enforcement. Community policing is the third. We're now in a fourth era of law enforcement called Homeland Security. But Homeland Security has similar components of community policing. So in essence, it's just changed its name from community policing to Homeland Security. I see. I see. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important to mention? I know we've covered a lot of territory. I know a lot of people want to simplify this and say, well, just lock the parents up or hold the parents accountable. That's that's easier said than done. So I hope that this information that you guys are uh, uh, putting out and that I'm saying will change the mindset of some individuals that they look at youth crime and and, and not look at these individuals, which they are criminals, but they're juvenile delinquents that we could save if we reached them at a uh, point in time where they had a crossroad in their life. And, and I know that's not popular because a lot of people want to just throw those kids away. But I do believe that, as you stated, you stated better than I did, that if these components that we spoke of have to buy into this, 
in a a, uh, a big way. And a lot of it has to do with funding, Ms. Fraser. And that's where the local politicians, state and local, come in, fund these programs to give these youth. And maybe we can save the ones who hadn't gone away with it. Maybe we can save the ones that are on the borderline, that trying to decide, should I uh, stay in school or should I get out here in these streets? And then it does sound like definitely mental health services. Oh, yes, Lord. Money needs to be put into that as well to deal with this. And we have to, and and let me say this, my mindset is totally different, Ms. Frazier, than when I was early on in my career. Because I saw a perp, I arrested a perp, and I didn't care. But once I got more academic, especially after I got my master's at JSU, I started looking at there are other reasons why these individuals are delinquent. And as a criminologist, we don't look at the crime. We look at why is this person deviant? And we try to deal with the individual. And that's what needs to happen when you mention the community health partners. That's the part that we have to do. We have to, we know they're delinquent. We know that. But why? And what could we do to reduce this recidivism rate among these individuals? How can we uh, make this kid's first and last time coming here. And we have to diagnose it, not as criminal, but we have to diagnose for whatever their mental needs are. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It's a very complicated issue with a lot of, it's like a spider web. Yes, it is. But when you look at the average uh, public, they say, what is this guy talking about all these theoretical perspectives? Well, we get that. But that's where the other leaders have to come in and talk with the academics, the you know, the, the people, the academia people. What's going on? And they have to partner with uh, JSU or Tougaloo or these colleges and, and these professors uh, that are in these, that understand the psychologists. They have to, it, it wouldn't hurt to partner with them and say, hey, tell us what we can do. Uh, you all have the uh, the, the, the knowledge academic where we have the manpower or the resources on the uh, practitioner side. What can we do to come together and uh, address what's going on now? And that's hard to do because law enforcement as a profession is what we call rigid and inflexible, and it resists change. And can I give you a quick example? Sure. Lee Vance was my training officer when I came on the JPD, right, in 91. Well, Lee came on in 87, I believe, 86, 87. He's the former Hines County Sheriff who passed away. Right, right. So who trained Lee? Somebody from the 70s. Well, when Lee trained me in the 80s, I mean the 90s, 91, what did he train me on? Methodology and lessons that he would talk from the 70s. So we're behind. So we have to come as a law enforcement. We have to make that change. I cannot police the way... I did back in 91 today because the social environment and climate has changed. The criminal element has changed. I used to be after guys who were 20, 21, 22 and had a few young ones, but now I'm after guys who are 13, 14, and 15. So we have to adapt. And if law enforcement doesn't adapt, uh, we're going to have a problem. Kevin Levine is a professor of criminology at Jackson State University. Coming up, we talk with a call center employee on strike today in Hattiesburg. Stay with us. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi is following a national trend in rising COVID-19 cases. The current rate of transmission is still a fraction of what it was during the winter Omicron surge, but it's up dramatically from even a few weeks ago. The State Department of Health reported nine. 917 new cases between Friday and Sunday. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist. I think what we are seeing, though, which is encouraging, as we see these new subvariants of Omicron that uh, are emerging, at time we do see some increases in them, and we do see some changes in the predominant subvariant that's around over time, is that we're still seeing the effectiveness of the vaccine against these subvariants. The health department reports 52 percent of Mississippians are vaccinated against COVID-19 and 38 percent have received a booster shot. Momentum towards unionization at major companies like Starbucks and Amazon could make for a readjustment of the balance of power in American workplaces. In Mississippi, workers at a Maximus call center in Hattiesburg are on the second day of a strike. Maximus is federally contracted to help public health care recipients navigate their coverage. Tishma Soche is a call center employee who's on the picket line. She tells MPB's Brittany Brown she wants Maximus leadership to address a specific set of issues. The wages, you know, we, we need better wages, higher wages. Um, they're paying us the minimum that they're required to pay, and we are fighting for a lower deductible, better health care. Our deductible is $4,000, um, but it's mostly the higher wages, the better health care. Um, we work for someone uh, that provides health care for millions of Americans, um, whether it's through Medicare or Marketplace, and it's all government-related, you know, it, and we... We make the the least amount that a federally contracted person can make, which is $15 an hour. And as a worker, what are some issues you've been dealing with and maybe some of your coworkers have been dealing with in the midst of all of this? Okay, so obviously the cost of living is rising for everyone, but wages are not. I'm a single mother of two, and I'm not eligible for food stamps or other government assistance because I make right over the limit. When I say right over the limit, I'm literally talking $30 or less. You know, um, under our our health insurance deductible, as I said, for the insurance provided by Maximus is $4,000. Impossible for us all, for all of us to to meet making $15 to $15.58 an hour. I'm in two lines of business with Maximus, a position that a few years ago came with a $2 raise, $2 an hour raise. Now that the federally contracted workers are required to be paid no less than $15 an hour, that same job only comes with a $0.58 raise when nothing has changed. Um, According to MIT, the living wage in Hattiesburg with one child, a one-child household, you would need to make around $30 an hour. I make half of that, and I'm a two-child household. And was that from the MIT living wage calculator? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen that, and it, it has been really eye-opening to see the calculations of that compared to, you know, what people all across the state are Absolutely. making. Absolutely. 
how has it been trying to convince, you know, your, your coworkers at Maximus to take that step to, you know, join the organizing to get out there and strike and, and push for, for better benefits, higher pay? Not hard for the work to get the ones that are having the, that use the health insurance from our job and that have to pay that $4,000 deductible, which is two months of our income. We'll never meet that. So those are easy. The ones with the families that, that are work, struggling, those are easy. But it is a little harder if they're nervous and they think that, that they're going to be penalized in some type of way. How much do you take home every month? Before or after taxes? Uh, after. Under 2000 And for you to, you know, make it by month to month, taking care of yourself and your two children, what are those, you know, what is that roundabout kind of rough estimate of expenses like what what is the monthly cost for you to live eat breathe go to school go to work every month it takes everything it takes everything every dime i make um you know just to have a mobile home that's three bedrooms cost me 620 dollars a month which will be mine i'm paying for it but then lights are 200 dollars a month water is 20 dollars a month the Wi-Fi, the phone, it, it's insane. I think that the people who make the decisions as far as what we get paid and all that, it's so high up, their income's not being affected but until they start paying us more. And that they're just not willing to... It will just take a lot to break down because they're going to have to budge, and that's not something that corporate want to do because that cuts into their paychecks, their bonuses, their extras. The CEO of our company brought in over $8 million or something this year in his own pocket. That's not okay. The difference, in, it's just not okay. I don't think it's that they don't want to. They just don't want to, and they're not going to unless they have to, unless they're pushed, unless someone stands up and says, enough. And I think they chose to come to this, city and town because and and in our our region the southeast because they knew that they could give a little and we would think it would be a lot can you tell me more about that because it's actually very interesting to hear you say that um because i think i think that is that is the case right for a lot of these corporations that plant factories Mm -hmm. and call centers in our small towns across the deep south and it and it becomes a major employer for our small towns I, I really want to hear more um, about that. My thoughts on that are just, they know that we are not, most people in the Southeast region, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Bugalusa, Bugalusa where they got one, Louisiana, that's, we're all small town type people. We don't make a lot of money, so we do, you know, they seem that as a place to hit, and we're full of minorities, low-income families, um, we are, of course, easy, that's an easy target to just milk for work while the major corporate type people are the ones making the major income, where the workers are doing everything and making the minimum that they're legally allowed to make, have to pay us. For the same job in another state, someone would start out in my position at 17 to $22 an hour, depending on the state they're in. Now, what is the difference in them doing the job and me from my cubicle of the corner? 
of the country. Tell me how is striking an efficient means of of you know letting upper management and, and your employer know like hey we're tired of dealing with this we're pushing for higher pay thankfully it gathers attention from people like you guys you know the media um a lot it gets people interested and maximus just like any other corporation isn't going to want the attention they're not going to want the negative press they're not going to want the negative attention and it it'll make them do something this is our only course of option uh, is our only option it is this or go and look for another job. And I like my job and I enjoy helping the people that have Medicare understand their insurance and get better insurance. I like helping the marketplace people, you know, get their insurance. And that's people all over the country. I don't just wait on people in Mississippi. As a matter of fact, I'm usually waiting on people, tending to people not in Mississippi and the Southeast. It's everyone. It's the whole United States. I like my job. I don't want to have to look for another one. I'm not complaining about the job itself. I'm complaining about they they just are willing to work you for nothing. But I think that corporate will listen because the striking is our only option and getting the media's attention, getting other people's attention, putting our foot down and making them see that if you don't want employees have going out every so often on strike, getting more employees that are riding by, honking their horns, noticing us to stop. That's really a main, a, a big way of how we get people's attention to join the union is because they'll see everybody out there and some of the workers that they're used to seeing in the building out there, you know, on their regular shifts, they're seeing them out there gathered up in red with their family members, holding signs and chanting and all in unison, just coming together as coworkers and community trying to make a difference. Because what's good for us is good for the for Hattiesburg. If we make more, we're going to spend more here. So we're not asking for anything that's not deserved. That's Tishma Soche, who's among workers striking today at Maximus Call Center in Hattiesburg. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's in legal terms. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day.